Well, good morning, Christ City. Christmas is a time where we celebrate peace, but it's also the time, maybe more than any other time of the year, where we are aware of all the ways that we lack peace. Maybe right now, this morning, you have many of those things on your minds as we're heading into the Christmas season, and you feel poignantly the burdens of trying to figure out how to plan Christmas during a season of COVID. Or maybe you're aware of the ways that you lack peace because people are celebrating around you or starting to talk about Jesus and and peacefulness, and you're just thinking about the conflict that you have that's unresolved, maybe with your husband or, or with your wife with one of your children, or with a family member. Maybe this season is a season that's bringing to mind the uncomfortable conversations with your mom, or with your dad, or with extended family, or with friends that that might actually happen around Christmas time that you really want to avoid. Maybe it's making you conscious of that, that deep grief that you bear as you realize this will be another Christmas, celebrating alone, without the ones that you deeply love. See, Christmas for for many people is one of the most difficult times of the year, a time where we ask aloud, where will I ever find peace? When will I ever have peace? Well, I have good news for you this morning, if that's you, because this morning Our second Advent message is all about peace. And as we jump in, I want to invite you to join with me in considering what the Bible has to say about the arrival of the King of Peace. The arrival of the one that we celebrate at Christmas time. The arrival of Jesus. We're going to be looking at another prophecy this morning from Isaiah in chapter 11, verses 1 to 10. And my prayer for us is that through this text, we would see, we would trust, and we would worship Jesus, the King of Peace. And that as we do, we would find rest in him, no matter what our circumstances are this morning. We find rest as we trust and hope and worship him for our weary souls. So our outline this morning's simple. It's just this. We're going to look at our need for peace. We're going to look at the King of Peace and we're going to look at the reign of peace. So jump in with me, our first point, our need for peace, and look at Isaiah 11 and just verse 1. There, Isaiah says this, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the background for this text is the wickedness of Israel's leaders and God's judgment against them. And sometimes I I think it's very difficult for us to grapple with what's happening uh, to the ancient peoples that are in a text in the Bible and to relate to them at all. But I think that it's easy for us actually this morning to relate with the people who long for and needed good rulers. Recently, I've been chipping away at a book about the former uh, Soviet republics in Central Asia, and I've been blown away by the ridiculous dictators that all of those countries had. It's been often very humorous. I'll give you one example. One of those leaders, who was a dictator of Turkmenistan until he died uh, several years ago, he renamed himself Turkmenbashi. His name before that was Suparumat Niyatsov. So maybe there's a good reason that he named himself to Turkmenbashi. But his renaming campaign, it didn't stop there. 
Pretty soon, Turkmenbashi was a name for everything in Turkmenistan. Dozens of street names became Turkmenbashi. Schools became Turkmenbashi. The 670-pound meteor that fell in 98 in Turkmenistan became Turkmenbashi. And then he even goes on and renames the months of the year, beginning with January, which, of course, fittingly, the first month became Turkmenbashi. And then April, he also renamed, but not Turkmenbashi. He renamed it after his mother, Gurban Sultan Edza. And not just April after his mother, but even bread became Gerben Sultan Edza, which becomes very awkward, I think, at the dinner table. And he goes on beyond that even to place images of himself all over the country that he rules, even legally requiring his portrait to appear on every watch face and every clock face in the nation. Could go on and on and on about Turkmenbashi. And there's a sick sort of humor and looking at the life of a dictator. And they're amusing, I think, especially from a great distance. It's not so amusing when you get closer to them. And they're amusing because they are such transparent examples of selfishness and of pride. But the thing is, they aren't funny. Because the result of their deep selfishness and arrogance is deep oppression and suffering for their people. You see, something like this was going on in the days of Isaiah the prophet. The rulers had become selfish and wicked. The poor suffered. The widow and the orphan didn't have a place that they could go to to have a, a fair court trial and to be heard uh, in their cases. Injustice was everywhere, and oppression was normal. And certainly, Israel's kings were at fault for this, as this text indicates. But the big picture of Isaiah's prophecy throughout the book is that not only the leaders, but the people themselves as well had become cruel and oppressive and corrupt. After all, dictators and wicked kings, they're not so different than you and I. All a dictator or a wicked king is, is our own human selfishness given a throne and a blank check. See, God's people who were supposed to be an example of God's own merciful and loving character on earth have become wicked and they have become oppressive because of their selfishness. They turned away from a love of God that they were called to and a love of others that they were called to towards a love of self. And that turn toward the self, that turn inward toward themselves, it did what it always does in human history. It produced strife and wickedness and oppression. So God looked at Israel and he promised to do something about all the strife and wickedness that he saw. But his work of restoration would start with judgment. You know, when I was growing up, I had an old decrepit cherry tree that was on our property. There was a tire swing on that tree. We'd spend hours and hours every day playing on it. And it wasn't very fruitful. Every time fruit season came along, we'd get like two or three cherries off of it because it was quite diseased. And one year, I remember how my father had it aggressively pruned, hoping that it would become fruitful again. And after it was pruned, I remember thinking it wasn't much of a tree anymore because all it was is just like the stump with like a couple other stumps coming out of it. It looked hideous. But God's promise to Israel was to do something like that. Look again at verse 1. He said, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So God promised an aggressive pruning of Israel's line of kings that would cut out all that was diseased and all that was sinful. And all that would be left was a stump. 
But out of that stump would grow a branch that would produce fruit like no other king in history. What would that fruit be? It would be a new people who follow this new king, who would have their lives transformed by this new king, who would live in imitation of this king, who would live in imitation of the king who imitates and examples God to them with justice and with love and with mercy, filling up the nation and restoring it in righteousness. You see, this branch and its fruitfulness would lead to the restoration of Jerusalem, but not just of Jerusalem. Outward from Jerusalem, through his reign and through his rule, the entire world, including creation itself, would be restored. And who was the branch? It was Jesus. Jesus, the Messiah, who had come, who would come to establish the kingdom of God in righteousness. So I want to turn now and look not just at, at the problem, the need for peace, the promise of the coming of Jesus, but also now looking at verse 2 and following to see together Jesus. I want to look at Jesus with you to consider who he is as the righteous branch, the king of peace. And as we look at this text, the first thing that Isaiah prophesies about Jesus is that the Holy Spirit will rest upon him. Look at 11, verse 2. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Why is this important? Why does Isaiah start here when he describes this Messiah? Well, consider the situations in our world where peace is needed. Many of those situations, they're not straightforward, actually. They're quite complex. It's difficult to know in situations of conflict exactly how to work in those situations to accomplish peace. It's difficult to know how to discern from the outward appearances and discern inward beneath those outward appearances to see what's really going on. What's really needed is great insight. Great leaders need great insight and wisdom. And this text is saying and promising that Jesus, when he comes as the king of peace, he would have insight and wisdom like no one else. Because the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of almighty God, would rest upon him. And if you read the gospel stories about Jesus' life carefully, you'll realize that this is exactly what happened. That Jesus' whole life was richly and deeply empowered by the spirit of the living God. He was conceived by the Spirit, Matthew says in chapter 1, verse 20. And the Spirit descended on him like a dove at his baptism. We read in, Matthew, or read in Mark chapter 1, verse 10 and other places. And Jesus himself declared in one of his first public appearances at his hometown synagogue, he walked up into the synagogue and he was given the scroll of Isaiah and he began to read and he declared this about himself. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to sit at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You see, Jesus is the wise king who is promised. He's the one who was full of the Spirit, who was equipped to rule in justice and in righteousness. 
But Isaiah describes a spirit with a line that I don't think that you and I would have anticipated. He says there again, look at it with me, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Now what is he talking about? Well, the book of Proverbs teaches us the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord in chapter 1, verse 7. But in Isaiah's ministry as a prophet, fearing God took on a whole new level of importance because it was fearing the wrong thing that had actually led to the failure of the kings in Isaiah's day. See, they were more afraid of enemy nations and public opinion than they were of God. See, fearing the wrong thing led them away from flourishing and peace and towards selfishness and resulting strife. But Jesus would be different. The presence of the Holy Spirit in his life would do what the Holy Spirit always does. It would produce true godly fear of the Lord in him. And as a result, Jesus would live in perfect union with his Father, obeying and honoring and living for the delight of his Father alone. He wouldn't look to the left or to the right to compare himself to others or to fear what could happen to him circumstantially. He would live only desiring and living fully in obedience to please the Father. After all, he said in John 6, verse 38, For I have come down from heaven... Not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now, how many times have you failed to live in obedience to God because you were afraid? How many times have you failed to live in the full flourishing of what God would give you in Jesus because you were afraid of what someone else thought? because you were afraid of, of a certain circumstance that what might happen if you take a step of obedience. Now imagine if Jesus were like you. Imagine if in the Garden of Gethsemane, if fear of man had had the upper hand. But that's not what happened. Now Jesus is the king of peace who feared the Lord because he was full of the spirit and even when he faced betrayal and arrest and torture and heartbreak, he said, not my will, but yours be done. In Luke 22, verse 42. And because of that, he accomplished our salvation, bringing us peace. You see, the spirit rested on Jesus. And because of the power of the Spirit with him, his rule is perfect. His rule is different than all who came before him. Just look at verse 3. It says, He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. Have you ever been in a situation where, where you maybe were judged by outward appearances? Someone thought that they knew what was really going on and they made the wrong call based on just what they observed. This verse is saying that Jesus doesn't do that. He will never do that. He will not judge just by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. No, he is righteousness and justice incarnate and will always judge rightly. He will always look at the heart and perceive with insight what's really going on. He's never fooled by outward appearances. And he is full of mercy and justice for the lowly. Just look at verse 4. It says, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. 
See, Jesus is a king of peace who doesn't show favoritism to any of his constituents. Jesus is a king of peace who will never accept a bribe. He's a king of peace who will never be manipulated to be used for your own purposes or for someone else's own wicked purposes. In fact, he is a king who's perfect in justice, who comes with mercy to help, in particularly, the lowly and the humble. Jesus defends the cause of those who are oppressed. There's a really beautiful picture of this in his life and ministry on earth when one day he sat and he patiently and painstakingly braided a whip. Just think of Jesus, fully God, with all the thought that goes into making himself a whip with this intentionality in order to go to the temple and to drive out the people who had churned it into a marketplace. See, he drove out those who prioritized self-seeking and personal advantage over lowly and humble and outcast peoples coming to meet with and to pray with God. He defends the cause of the oppressed. And this Jesus is coming again. And this world, not just that place and that temple uh, in Jerusalem, but in this entire world, this world is his temple. And when he returns, he will drive out all that is wicked and oppressive and wrong forever. And those who trust in him will be vindicated no matter what their suffering is now. And those, continue, those who continue to war against his peace with their selfishness and sin, they will be stopped and they'll be punished by Jesus himself. You see, Jesus is an incomparably good king who is righteous and compassionate and just. He's a king with infinite power who loved the little children and let them sit on his knee. He's a king who is perfectly holy yet saw the soul-destroying shame of a prostitute and welcomed her affection. The way she kissed his feet and anointed his feet in the presence of others who were aghast. He's a king who saw Zacchaeus, the despised tax collector, who was rejected in his own community. And Jesus, when he saw him, he, he approached Zacchaeus and said, Zacchaeus, let me stay at your house, giving Zacchaeus dignity and worth and coming to him, though he was rejected by those around him. He's a king who welcomes repentant sinners with mercy and with love, but confronts the wicked hearts of hypocrites, never for a moment being fooled by the outward appearance. He's a king who is God most high, but come low, not just to save his people, but to die for them. He's a king who, as you see him, as you come to know him, you grow to long to obey him, to long to follow him, to be like him, not because he threatens you, but because he woos you with his love. Because he shows you his love by condescending to you in such humility that you are brought to your knees in worship and in adoration. This is Jesus. And his reign will be perfect peace. Look at Isaiah 11, verses 6 to 9. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. 
Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. See, Isaiah 11, 1 to 10 is one of the most preeminent passages of peace in the Bible. And yet the word peace isn't even used once. But it's one of the most incredible pictures of peace because of what it communicates. The rule of a truly just and righteous king. A world where all that is broken is righted. A time when tranquility would exist between predator and prey, when tragedy and horror is finished. Look again at what he says in verse 8. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. I mean, I, I hate snakes. I'm afraid of snakes, and this text makes me shiver just thinking about what it's describing. So it's amazing to me just at face value. But there's far more here. Because Isaiah is describing the dream of every person who has ever encountered tragedy in this world. A time when peace would exist instead of tragedy. I just heard this last week, again, of a friend of a friend. And another horrible tragedy. When this person lost their 11-year-old when when a truck failed to stop at a crosswalk. And we hear about these things. And we cry out, How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? But in faith, we look to this passage of Scripture. And we look forward to the day when the reign of the King of Peace will be complete. When tragedy will be over. When all the heartbreak that has existed since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden will be done with. When it will be reversed. Why will it be that way? Well, verse 9 is interesting. It says this. It says, For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Evil and wickedness and its results will be gone because something else will take its place. The Lord will take its place. A knowledge of him love for him, worship of him, obedience to him, the presence of him, all together living under the reign of Jesus, that will fill up this world and all will be well. What is peace? The absence of conflict and tragedy, surely, but more. It's the presence of Jesus. It's our lives and this world increasingly filled up with the presence of God Almighty. Friends, I want you to consider verse 10 with me as we conclude. Verse 10 says this, In that day, when this happens, when this king comes, in that day the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, that's Jesus, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. 
You see, verse 10 talks about the arrival of Jesus as a king of peace and the way that distant peoples would hear about it and they would begin to seek out Jesus because they would hear about the peace that he is affecting in this world and they'd come to live under his rule. And friends, as we conclude, I want to ask, that's what this passage describes, but what about us? Where are we right now looking for peace? Are we seeing a passage like this one and in faith coming to submit to and seek to live under the reign of Jesus? Or are we seeking to find peace in ourselves again and again? Trying blind alley after blind alley after blind alley on our way to find peace in ourselves. You see, you and I do what's natural to us as human beings. We constantly try to manufacture peace, to to find peace in living in our freedom in doing what we want. Either doing what we want corporately and working to affect the peace of our own design or doing what we want inwardly and deeply personally, seeking to affect peace by living according to our desires as we see best. But that will never lead to peace. See, the vision of Isaiah and the narrative of the Bible says that won't work. It shows us that when human beings freely pursue peace and happiness according to their definitions apart from God, it always ends in sorrow. So what should we do? What should we do this season as we long for peace? Friends, we should do what the nations do in verse 10. We should run to Jesus. We should seek to live under his rule. We should seek his face to know him, to love him, to grow in obedience to him, to live by the power of his spirit, to come to know him, to follow him with our whole lives. Friends, the good news of Christmas is that peace has come, that Jesus has been born, and that his peace is available to us now by his spirit as we live in submission to him. So friends, will you submit to him? He is humble, he is love, and he is the king of peace. Would you pray with me? Father, would you help us? And would you help us to come to the end of ourselves and to surrender to Jesus and to find peace? In his name we pray, amen.